I'm going to start off with a question, and I'm going to look for a, a raising of hands. Raise your hands. Okay. Do you value loyalty? Do you value loyalty? Do you? Some people didn't raise their hands. That's <laughs> interesting. Okay. All right. You've been noted. All right. Do you value loyalty? I'm thinking most people do, and maybe they were just too shy to raise their hands. Um, okay. Now, you don't need to raise your hand on this one. Are you a loyal person? You don't need to raise your hand on that. Are you a loyal person? If someone were to describe you, would they say, yeah, loyalty is definitely one of the character traits I would attach to, you know, that person. Are you loyal to others? Do you, how do you show loyalty? How do you show loyalty? How do you express, and, you know, how do people, what do people see in, in you or anyone that they look at and say, that's loyalty. That's loyalty in action. Now, are there groups that falling down? <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay, excellent. Hopefully they'll stay up there. So, are there people or groups that you should not be loyal to? Are you loyal to those who have authority or rule over you? Do you have authority, or so do you have loyalty towards those who serve under you? And are you loyal to God? You know, I'd get around to that eventually, right? Are you loyal to God? I wanted to have a definition for loyalty, and so I, I went online as I do, and you know, I go to Wikipedia a lot because, not because I think it's the best definition, but because it's the most popular. And I think it gives me a good bead on what people think when you bring up a topic, so loyalty. And I looked up loyalty on Wikipedia, and I don't recommend it because it's terrible. Um, <laughs> it's so confused, and it's shooting off in five or six different directions. You really don't get a good handle on it at all. So I went to my next, which was dictionary.com. They've got something nice and succinct, which is that loyalty is unswerving allegiance to a person or institution. Now, in, in thinking about it, one of the reasons I think, it's a little bit of supposition on my part, but one of the reasons why Wikipedia is so confused about loyalty is because we as a society are so confused about loyalty. Why is that? Why, why might people be confused about loyalty? Well, I think it's because they've been abused. Abused. You know, and I noticed when I was reading the Wikipedia that people kept coming back to Nazis, you know, and people just love going to the Nazis. I guess they're the epitome of evil. And, you know, pointing out how loyal the, you know, people in Germany were to the Nazis and how it just basically upset the whole apple cart. And people really don't know what to think about loyalty. And you might have been through a situation yourself where your loyalty is taken advantage of and so forth. But loyalty is an important characteristic to support or to align your priorities in accordance to, to, to look out for and to have concern for the well-being of that person or group that you're loyal to, even though you don't always understand why they're doing what they do. Someone who is loyal is a person who will treat you right even when they have reasons not to. 
Maybe you're not convenient at that moment. Um, maybe siding against you would be to their personal advantage. And so loyalty is tested. You could imagine, if you would, a loyal friend. A loyal friend is someone who will pick you for their softball team even though they know you're a lousy player because they don't want you to be embarrassed by being the last person picked. That's the kind of thing a loyal person does. And that's a small example, but you, you get the drift. And it's, it's hard, I think, to wrap your words around a concept like loyalty because it has a lot of variations and subtleties. Now I'm going to go through some of those. Um, a loyal person, someone who can be trusted and relied upon in small things and in big things. Now this is all well and good, right? And this is, but is it a biblical concept? Is loyalty a biblical concept? Do I have any reason for going through loyalty in this setting and at this time? The Hebrew word hesed is the word to zero in on with this, okay? Hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And uh, I don't know about my pronunciation, but in English Bibles, and I assume that we're all pretty much working from English Bibles, hesed is generally rendered or translated as faithfulness. Faithfulness, okay? Although you will occasionally see it translated in other ways. You might see it translated as loyalty. That's something you would be more apt to see in a more recent translation like the NIV or NLT or something like that. You'll also see it translated as kindness or friendship and even mercy. So the same word, hesed, translated a little differently, kind of depending on the context. And there are two kinds of loyalty when we look at, at the, you know, the biblical context. One is God's loyalty to us. He is faithful, right? He is loyal. All right, and I'm going to use the word loyal. I'm going to just talk a little bit about loyal equals faithful, and then I'm going to move on and stick with loyal. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I think when you talk um, and you use the word faithfulness, it kind of gets muddled up in people's minds with the idea of faith. And it's, we're not talking about that. It's a different thing to be faithful, a little different from faith, Okay. All right, so God is loyal to us. He is ever faithful. Um, his faithfulness is one of the many ways that he describes himself to us. He is faithful to his promise. He is faithful and loyal to his people, looking out for them, concerned about their well-being, even when they don't really deserve it. Then there's our loyalty to God, our loyalty to God. And uh, when hesed, or faithfulness, is used to describe how we respond to God. It means that we're committed to, okay, we're committed to, we support, we are aligned with him and what he's doing in, in the world, okay? Now, there's an additional component when, it's, and when it applies to the way we interact with God. And that is when describing our relationship with our creator, loyalty also includes the idea of obedience, okay? Obedience. Now, if loyalty is unswerving allegiance to a person or an institution, 
or you know a plan or with a, with the program or whatever. Notice that the scope of the definition, what's included in the definition, changes depending on the relationship of the two parties. Okay, God's faithfulness towards you does not include obedience. Your faithfulness towards God does include obedience. Okay, so uh, in in uh, worldly terms, a person put in charge of a department at work um, can and should be loyal to those who work for them. Okay, but that loyalty does not involve obedience. Right. And if I'm the person who's working in the department, okay, under the department head, then loyalty for me would include obedience. So it also translates into um, real-life, day-to-day terms. Now, loyalty is also possible between peers, okay? So it's not just, you know, up and down, it's across. It's also there in a relationship you have with peers, okay? And... In that situation, obedience would not be, I don't think, part of the way you would define loyalty. But I do believe that mutual submission to one another would be essential to building that relationship of loyalty between two peers. So with that said, a person might be obedient, okay, through fear, fear of punishment, getting fired, God's judgment, and still have no trace of loyalty. And the reason I say that is just so that I make it clear that loyalty is not identical to obedience. Does that that make sense? Loyalty is not the same thing as obedience. Loyalty is a little different. Loyalty is, I would say, an attitude of the heart an attitude of the heart, which is perhaps why it's a little difficult to define. Um, Turn to Acts 13, verses 20 through 22. This is breaking into a longer, um, probably a sermon, and um, talking about broad, sweeping history of Israel kind of stuff. And so... It goes through God calling people out of Egypt and so forth and what he does and brings them into the land. And then in verse 20, all this took place about 450 years ago. And after this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. And after removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So God speaks of David here in very glowing terms. Notice that he says that he'll do everything that I want him to do. Um, but you know, if we go back to be obedience, there's, there's more to it than that. He's a man after my own heart. He didn't just say, I like David because he he's obedient. He said, he's a man after my own heart. Now, God's love for David... Um, if you thought it through, you probably re- realize or have had to work through that it's a bit of a riddle. God's love for David can be a riddle. You look at it and you, you learn about David, you learn about his life and the ups and downs of his life, and you think, wow, yeah, David had his issues. I mean, he, you know, 
one that comes up a lot is, he had all these wives, you know, and he had this harem, basically. He committed adultery. Um, he orchestrated a murder. He was a warrior. He had blood on his sword. And he had killed many men. And God even calls him a bloody man. He says, David, you're a bloody man. And he wouldn't let him be the one to uh, build the temple. Solomon was given that. And there's this struggle with this enigma, which is David. And um, if you think about it, there are other personalities recorded in Scripture that come off very righteous, um, scrupulous people. Noah, Job, Daniel, um, Joseph is another one. But why did God love David so much? Why did he love him so much? He had all these other people to pick from. God, I believe, clearly saw qualities, and I'm going to call them matters of the heart again, qualities in David such that he called him a man after my own heart. And one of the traits that God saw in David, I put it to you, was loyalty. Loyalty. Loyalty to commitments, to people who were either above or below, loyalty and commitment to Israel and all that it stood for in God's plan. And that's a big one, big one. And loyalty matters because it is a basic attribute of God's own character, a basic part of who God is. And like any father, any father would, or mother, I suppose, but any parent, God delights in seeing himself reflected in his children. And you know that from your own life. You have a child and you think, oh, yeah, I can, you know, you see, sometimes you see good things. You think, yeah, he's just like me. Of course, then sometimes you see other things and you think, oh, man, no, he picked that up too. But a parent, and think of this, going back to God as, as our father creator, delights in seeing himself reflected in his children, in you, in me, and in David. Okay, so let's zoom in on the importance of loyalty. Big picture now. God's plan, told you it's big picture. God's plan is to grant everlasting life, position, and authority, okay, means there's going to be other people, other sentient beings over whom you will have some sort of sway. And he's going to grant all this to those who are in Christ at his return. Does it make any sense? I'm asking you to put your logic cap on here. Does it make any sense that he would give all that to someone who does not demonstrate the character trait of loyalty? So, how do you prove yourself loyal? How do, you, how do you know someone's loyal? How do you know your friend is loyal rather than, you know, just there for the good times? Well, that's, that's kind of the answer there, isn't it? How do you know someone is loyal? How do you prove your loyalty to God, your creator, except through troubles? Temptation, trial, testing, and even suffering. And, you know, let's consider life's experiences, uh, the loyalty that we have 
among each other and so forth. How do you ever really know if your friend is loyal except by seeing and experiencing what he or she does when they have every reason in the world not to be loyal, right? Like I mentioned earlier, maybe you're not convenient. Maybe you're not the coolest kid. Maybe siding against you would be in their own interests. How do you know when someone's loyal? How do you know when someone is loyal? Friendship is something, you know, it can be built and formed in good times. Loyalty is something that is tested and proven and shown in the bad times, isn't it? That's when you know there's loyalty. The loyalty of David. Let's zoom in on the loyalty of David, okay? Now, I mentioned earlier that I found uh, defining loyalty a bit of a challenge. And, uh, you know, I went here and there and I was looking for loyalty and people are all mixed up and muddled up because they've got all these concepts about, well, you know, loyalty isn't always good. Sometimes it's bad depending on the, you know. Yeah. How does God explain difficult concepts to us? How does he explain hard concepts to us? Well, he does it in many, in many circumstances. He does it through telling us a story and telling us about someone's life and how circumstances were and how they responded. And he calls upon us to reflect on that. We're going to do a little bit of that with David. We can't do it all because it's, you know, it's basically an entire book of the Bible. And we just don't have time for it. Um, but God explains and helps us understand concepts through the written example of others. Okay? And David is one such example. And one way we learn about David's loyalty is through the contrast, through the contrast drawn between him and Saul. David was loyal and devoted to God himself. Okay? He did what God asked. David was loyal and subject to his superiors, which you know, was a variety of different people, but we're mostly going to look at Saul. David was loyal to those he ruled over. He treated subordinates and subjects with loyalty. Now, the same record that we're going to look at with David in mind also shows Saul to be a man who was primarily devoted to himself and his own interests, a man unable to do what he was told when it was very important to God, a man of authority over others, yet who was ever ready to throw his subordinates under the bus. That's, that's what we see with this man. Saul was not loyal toward his superior. God himself was his superior. He was king of Israel. Nor was Saul loyal to his subjects. Loyalty goes in both directions, up, down, and out. Actually, it's like an azimuth. It's in every direction. Every direction. Now, at times, when you read about David's life, you read about Saul's life, you have to admit, sometimes you relate to both of them, <laughs> you know? And you can see yourself reflected in both these people. And at times like that, we should ask ourselves questions. And one of the questions in, you know, in the context of today's message would be, am I loyal? Am I a loyal person? Is that how God sees me? How does God see me? 
Does he see me as loyal? Can God trust me? Does he see me act with loyalty towards the people in my life? Is that how I am? Toward my superiors, my subordinates, my peers? What does God see me do in life? I mean, I could, I could stand before God and I could protest and say, I am a loyal person. But how does he know? Well, he knows when the challenges occur, doesn't he? Yes. Now, Saul, let's go to 1 Samuel 9. And we are just going to hit the highlights here. But if you think about this I mean, and go back and read through the account, you might see a few of the things that are recorded here in a different light. In 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, it says this about Saul. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. Well, he's off to a good start, right? He's off to a good start. He had the look, right? He's got the look. He was tall. He was good-looking. came from a good family, if you read about Kish. And he was the sort of person who others would naturally look to as a leader because you know, as well as I do, that people put a lot of stock in appearance. You know? They look at someone and say, yeah, even though they don't know anything about it. We're all that way. So he had a head start, which is, you know, not all bad, I suppose. Um, he could have been a very effective instrument in God's hands. But Saul failed. He was not. Even though he had that, like, head start, he failed because he could not be trusted. His first loyalty was to himself. He was not dedicated to the cause. And we'll, we'll pluck out a couple of verses here and there, and I'll show you what I mean. Um, let's go to 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Samuel speaking to Saul here. Samuel, kind of like the spokesman, uh, the you know, last of the judges, speaking for God, giving Saul instructions, says, Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Saul is given some very specific and important instructions. I say important because if you reflect on it, Saul is being asked to fulfill prophecy. Uh, if you go back, if you were to look at, say, Exodus 17, verse 14 through 16, or Numbers 24, verse 20, God had said, I will do this to the Amalekites. And now he's asking Saul to do it. We're going to fulfill prophecy here. So it was important. It was an important mission. Okay? Now, drop down to verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep and the cattle and fat cows and lambs, everything that was good. These 
they were willing to just, sorry, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So all this stuff, God was devoted to God and devoted to his fulfillment of prophecy. But they wanted to keep the good stuff. Okay? Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument to his own honor and turned and gone down to Gilgal. Now, that's a verse I want to just draw your attention to when I say, you know, look, this is the guy's agenda. This is primary loyalty is to himself. There's other verses like this, but that's one. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears, and what is the lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from, brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. And Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil? in the eyes of the Lord. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God. Devoted to God. It wasn't theirs to take. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For the rebellion, for rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And it goes on, and this is, you know, kind of, more aftermath there, and one of the things that happens is that uh, Samuel says, okay, bring the king out to me, and he says, all right, if you're not going to do it, I am, and puts him to death. Notice how Saul focused on himself, you know, built a monument to himself. He was very pleased with what he had accomplished, not realizing he was fulfilling prophecy. It really wasn't him. Um, in verse 15, notice how he blames others. Remember I mentioned that he was not loyal to his subordinates. He threw the soldiers under the bus. Well, it was their fault. They're the ones who grabbed all the loot. And, you know, we kind of came up with this plan. Well, we'll, we'll you know, sacrifice it to the Lord. But I doubt very much. I mean, God was not going to be happy with that as a sacrifice. That's not how sacrifices work, as you know. Um, Verse 20, he allows the soldiers to take items that are devoted to God, presumably to win favor in their eyes. And then in verse 23, God calls him arrogant. An arrogant man. Because he's placing his priorities over God. 
Now, a similar failure happened in another place at uh, Gilgal, and that's over there in uh, chapter 13. But what happens there, I'm just going to summarize that rather than go through the, you know, the scriptures on this, but at Gilgal, Saul is told, okay, go to this hill and be ready to fight the Philistines and wait for seven days, and then I, Samuel, will come and sacrifice, and then we'll move forward with the plan. So he goes, the seven days pass, and the soldiers are all milling around, wondering what's going on, and they start thinking, ah. they get cold feet, and suddenly they start trickling off, and he sees his force dwindling down, and the seven days are up, it's the seventh day, and he's wondering what's going on, so what does he say? Okay, bring me the animals, and I'll make the sacrifice, and so Saul takes upon himself to, to do this offering and do this sacrifice, which is not his to do, because that was Samuel's task. And then Samuel comes. You know, he's there on the seventh day. He probably came at the last hour <laughs> testing, I suppose. But he came, and he said, what have you done? What in the world have you done? Because he'd started all this thing. And if you read through, um, let's see. We're in 13. Let's just take a look, quick look, uh, verses 13 and 14. Samuel says, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God given to you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And if you read through, again, I think you'll see that there's some interesting little things that Saul says that point out that he's very concerned about how this is going to reflect on him. And he sees the soldiers dwindling away, and he says, well, the Philistines are going to attack me. He's very focused on himself. Uh, I forget which verse exactly that is, but read it through, and you, I think with this in mind, you'll see, yeah, Saul's kind of focused on himself how this reflects on him. Well, I come off as the mighty warrior. Now, the man after God's own heart that was just spoken of there, okay, who was selected and anointed to replace Saul, was it? David. Now, what about the rest of Saul's reign? Here's an interesting point. God did not strike Saul down. Saul failed but a lightning bolt did not come out of the clouds, and Saul was not done away. God simply said, okay, your son after you will not inherit the throne. There will be no dynasty of Saul, okay? There's not gonna, you're not going to be a line of kings. Just not going to happen. After Saul, the kingship would go to David, this man after my own heart. And in this way, I believe, <coughs> excuse me, in this way, God showed himself to be loyal to Saul. Even though Saul didn't deserve it. No way. God had commissioned him as king, and he let him remain king. But he did not add the blessing of a lasting dynasty to Saul. So Saul reigned many years, many years after this, until he committed suicide on the battlefield. That's kind of how it went. Many, many years he was still king. 
Now, as he read, though, early on in his um, kingship, and this thing at Gilgal that we read would have been very early on in his, you know, being king of Israel, there was another person already selected and appointed as his successor, right? And that was David. And then through what appears, I believe, is the... um, the hand of God, providence, God making things happen. David was brought into the royal court, so he became part of Saul's entourage, if you will. First as a musician, he played the harp, and then as a warrior, okay? Then as a warrior. And David served Saul as a loyal subject, as a loyal subject. I mean, David knew he'd been anointed. He knew that the anointing had happened. He knew what the future held for him. He knew where it was all headed, but he served Saul as a loyal subject. And as David grew in fame as a warrior, Saul became jealous. Saul became very jealous. And um, at some point, Saul started to connect the dots, if you will. So he's got this guy in his court getting more and more famous in the whole land, He's a mighty warrior. People are singing songs about him. And Saul kind of is looking at this. He's very jealous. He starts connecting the dots. And it never says so, but he, he kind of says, this is the guy. This is the guy. And he realizes on some levels, this is what's happening. This is the man who would replace him as king over Israel. Turn to uh, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, and we will read verses 6 through 15. So when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres, and they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. So he's again, you know, focused on himself and his feelings and how he looks in this whole thing. You know, you can understand, but still, this is his focus. Saul was very angry, and uh, the song displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me, only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul, He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. And I think by pin David to the wall, he wasn't thinking he'd catch the corner of his shirt. (laughs) He was thinking, I'm going to catch the middle of his chest and pin him to the wall. This is pretty dire. Um, And Saul, if you think about it, He's not behaving with loyalty towards this man who is his servant, who's going out fighting battles for him, plays the lyre or guitar in his, in his presence for his own amusement. He's being served loyally by this man. Um, he actually acts very treacherously towards his subordinate. David was his subordinate. Uh, take a look at verse 25. Saul said, well, you can marry my daughter, so you can marry into the royal family. But first... I have a task for you. And basically what he does is he sets up a suicide mission. He says, okay, I'm going to come up with something so hard that he's going to kill. He's going to get killed 
That'll take care of everything. I'll come off smelling like a rose. Verse 25, um, okay, when Saul's servants told him what David had said, because David basically said, I don't have a dowry or anything to bring. Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. So I'm going to send him on this suicide mission. It doesn't need to happen, just for fun, because I think it would be a good opportunity to get rid of this guy. So Saul deals very treacherously with a man who is his subordinate. He is not showing that kind of loyalty that you want to see from you know, a, a, a boss to an employee, if you will. Okay, That's not what's going on here. So Saul, he just goes crazy with jealousy. And you can read more of the account, but Saul, he just goes nuts with jealousy. And he tried to kill David several times. Um, he sent him on this suicide mission, of course, hoping that David would die. David had to run for his life. He had to take off. And he went into hiding for years. Yet even through all those difficult years, David showed himself loyal to this man, loyal to this guy, because of who he was, but more what he stood for, okay, what he stood for. And you'll see that with some of the phrases that we'll pull out, what this man stood for, because he was the king of Israel. These were the people that God had chosen and who he was working through at that time, at that stage in his plan. And David had a lot of respect for Saul because of who he was in that context. Okay, First Samuel 22. One last look at uh, Saul. David's on, on the run, and he goes to the priest, and he, he needs some food, and he actually needs a weapon. <laughs> he gets a sword from the temple. They were keeping Goliath's sword, and he inquired of the Lord. And Saul finds out about this, and he goes, he goes crazy with jealousy again. And he goes and shows up at the doorstep of these priests demanding, what are you doing? How dare you, you know, do this with this man, David? Let's just read verses um, to verses 13 through 16. So Saul's speaking to the priest here, and Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, that's David, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him? so that he has rebelled against me. Notice again, focused on himself. He has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me, as he does today. And Himelech, this is the priest, answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was this the first time I ever inquired of God for him? No, of course not. So let not the king accuse your servant, me of any of or sorry or any of his father's family for your servant knows nothing about this whole affair this thing that's going on between you and david but the king said you will surely die Ahimelech, you and your whole family now you can read on um what happens is basically saul has the priest of israel killed and his own men won't do it so he has some mercenary guy who's not an Israelite to it, because everybody else says, no, I'm not going to put my hands on the priest. And he's, you, you do that. And so he finds this guy. Not only did they kill the priest, they kill his whole family, 
and they put the entire town of Nob to death. Everybody. Everybody. I mean, he wasn't, <laughs> he didn't keep any of it at all. They put them all to death. So this is a, another great example of Saul. Um, just, he's not loyal to his subjects. He's loyal to himself. He takes out his wrath on anyone who helps David. And he wipes out this entire Israelite town, his own subjects. And how could you say that Saul was loyal to the greater cause? He's loyal to himself and his own fame. What about David's loyalty to Saul? Now, David had every reason and every excuse. And I believe to the carnal mind, to the carnal mind, every right to kill Saul. Get him before he gets me, right? Every reason, if he ever got the chance. Now, beyond pure survival, David had an additional motive, okay? He was going to be king. If Saul was off, out of the picture, he was going to get to be king, okay? Um, and David actually had opportunities to kill Saul. So, <laughs> you know, like in the, you know, those mystery shows on TV, he had motive and he had opportunity. But he didn't do anything. He didn't harm Saul. Um, instead of running a spear through Saul's chest, David used the opportunities that he had to kill Saul to try and prove his loyalty. Let's take a look at 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 13. After Saul returning from pursuing the Philistines, um, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. So he had to to go to the bathroom. David and his men were farther back in the cave, and the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, David, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you. They even quoted scripture to make it sound like it was a good idea. But I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Where am I? See, my father, look upon this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. 
May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. David leaves judgment and vengeance to God. One more. Um, Sam, 1 Samuel 26. Okay? And this is a very similar occasion. Saul and his army are camping out, and David comes upon them, and they're all asleep. And David and his uh, sidekick, I guess, they creep into the camp, and everybody's sleeping and snoring, and they go right up to Saul's tent, and they're looking at Saul. And uh, let's see, let's pick it up in verse 8. Abishai, the guy who was with him, said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now, let me pin to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him down. Or his time will come and he will die. Or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So they grab some stuff, and they head back up the hill, and then they call out and say, hey, you guys. And then David kind of taunts the bodyguard and says, you're supposed to be protecting the king, but you did a really lousy job. Look at me. I've got his spear in my hand and his water jug in the other. And then he uses it as another opportunity to say to Saul, look, I am not trying to kill you. You can read that. We're not going to go through it, but it's pretty much the same as the one that we read previously, where he says, look, I've got, I had you right there in my hands. You're as good as dead, but I didn't kill you. If I wanted to, I would have. David was loyal to Saul till the day he died, till the day Saul died. And he was aware of Saul's sins. He knew Saul wasn't uh, a good man. He was aware of Saul's sins and his problems, and he had every reason to revile him as a man. When he died, he could have done the victory dance and said, yes, you know, he's gone. That bad man is gone. And he could have said, you know, things about Saul like that. But what did he do? When Saul died, he wrote a song about him. He wrote an ode to Saul, celebrating his accomplishments. Okay, celebrating his accomplishments. Um, all that he had done as a military commander, as Israel's king appointed to God, by God. And Saul did, he did a decent job of being a military commander. He was almost always at war and he was fighting. And David recognized that and said, well, you know, in spite of all the other stuff, that was a good thing that, that, that Saul accomplished. And he writes this song. And um, that's how he looked at things. Let's see. 2 Samuel 1, verse 14. Um, so I said that Saul killed himself. Then some guys kind of come across Saul's body, and they, they grab some stuff, and they grab the crown, and they bring it to David, and they say, Ho, ho, here we have the king, or we have the crown of the king. You know, we got it from Saul. Um, we put him to death, and here we are. And David finds out. And what does he do? Does he say, yes, thanks, give me the crown. I'm getting it on my head right now. No, that is not what David does. What does he do? I think he sums it up pretty fast. I said, 
you're a disloyal person. Off with his head. The man is put to death. Um, David punishes disloyalty. Now, again, if you go to 2 Samuel 4, there's another one. 2 Samuel 4. Now, this is a really good one because now, at this point, David's top dog. He's in charge now. He's the king. And uh, some men killed Saul's surviving son. Saul had a son left over. And uh, Ishbosheth. And he was sleeping in his bed, and some guys crept into his house, and they stabbed him in the stomach. They cut off his head, and then they ran off to David, and they had his head, and they said, all right, look what we've done. Here's the rival to the throne. This man, you know, Saul's son, could have claimed to be the rightful king, but you're the rightful king, and we've done this for you. Aren't we good? You know? Hey. Kind of like that cat that shows up at the back door with a, <laughs> you know, with a dead bird. <laughs> Ooh, why'd you do that? And that's exactly how David looked at it. He's, why would you do such a thing? Why would you do such a thing? David cannot stand disloyalty. This man hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't challenged David. He could have, but he hadn't, okay? Uh, take a look at verse 10 We're in 2 Samuel 4. Take a look at verses 10 and 12. Uh, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death at Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed should I now demand his blood from your hands and rid the earth of you? David had no patience for disloyalty. We're in 2 Samuel. Go to chapter 9. Interesting one here. David is looking around, he's consolidating the kingdom, he, he asks an interesting question. He asks, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Kindness. Now, note the same, note the use of the word here. It's chesed. Chesed. Remember I started off talking about the Hebrew word. What he says here, is there any member of Saul's household to whom I can show chesed. And it's translated kindness, but what he's really saying is, is there anyone out there left to whom I can show loyalty? So he's saying. He doesn't need to do this. He's king. But is there anyone I can, you know, I want to show loyalty. You know, I guess he wanted people to see it, hopefully emulate it. Um, this was Saul's grandson, this guy, Mephibosheth, that they found. And uh, David showed him kindness. He gave him a place of honor at the dinner table in the royal household and did it to you know, make a demonstration of loyalty. And it was also loyalty to his friend Jonathan, who was the man's father, and also a vow that he had made with Jonathan. Turn to 2 Samuel 10. Next chapter, it's in verse 1 and 2. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites, this is one of the kingdoms next to Israel, died. And his son, Haman, succeeded him as king. And David thought, I will show kindness to Haman, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sends off a delegation of people to express you know, kindness. Guess what word 
kindness is. Chesed. What David is saying is, ah, here's this neighboring king. He was good to me when the times were hard. I would like to demonstrate continued loyalty to this, to this person. Kindness. We think of kindness a little differently, but I think what he's saying is I'm going to show loyalty to this guy. Uh, that's always a good thing, you know, be loyal, to, be loyal to your allies, people who helped you out. Uh, I know things go badly after that, but this is David's intent to show chesed, or loyalty. Um, loyalty to his allies. So those are some examples of David and loyalty. Now, remember I said that we would only hit the highlights, and that's really all we, we can do today or we have time for but if you read through David's David's account loyalty faithfulness is part of his character it's a very important part of his character so there are other things about David you know and I could probably give you know a totally different sermon saying well this is another characteristic of David so today we've just kind of taken loyalty out and said we're going to look at this as, as a subject if you will Remember I mentioned that it was hard to, I went to Wikipedia and there's a lot of confusion about loyalty and so forth. And, you know, they they brought out, well, what about people that are bad? Should you be loyal to the the dictator and stuff like that? And, you know, going back to uh, the Nazis, the eternal boogeyman, they were bad, don't get me wrong. So is there ever a reason not to be loyal? Is there ever a reason or time or circumstance when you shouldn't be loyal? I'm sure you've wrestled with that question at some point. If you haven't, you probably will, and I have. Well, yeah, there's a loophole. I'm about to give you a loophole, all right? A loophole. There is a loophole, an honorable reason that overrides the godly virtue of loyalty. Obedience to God. That's your loophole. Okay? <laughs> that answers most of the questions about loyalty, you know, in difficult circumstances. Uh, I'm not saying it'll be easy, but that is your loophole. Obedience to God. Um, I can't cover all the contingencies, but if a person or an institution even a friend ever tries to coerce you into violating the commandments of God, you must go with your higher loyalty, which is to God. All right? With that said, I want to give you a warning. Warning. Just be careful when you use this loophole that you do not use it as a crafty way to excuse disloyal behavior. And you might wonder, well, what's he getting at? Well, I can't answer that directly. Um, good example might be to look, take a look at, you know, Jesus' words about Corbin. That's a good example. You know the ones I'm talking about? It was kind of a crafty way of getting around something. You can use your so supposed obedience to things get around very important things like loyalty. So it's a a warning and a loophole at the same time. (laughs) 
you know, you have to figure things out on your own. I can't give you all the answers in advance because I don't know what the problems are. Examine yourself for loyalty. Examine yourself for loyalty. Remember that before you can be seated with Christ, before you can be granted position representing the family of God, its values, its priorities, and its goals, you must learn and demonstrate what it means to be loyal. Among other things. Now, for some, that means that you deal faithfully and loyally with those that you have um, rule over, if you want to use that term. Uh, your, your wife and children, or your or children, your family, your staff at work. I don't know where everybody fits in the hierarchy of, of work or whatever, but let's say you've got subordinates at work. Okay? Now, for pretty much everybody, it means to deal faithfully and loyally with those who have authority or some kind of position or rule over you. Almost everybody comes under some kind of authority. Are you loyal to your parents? Are you loyal to your parents? Are you loyal to your boss? Even though he's he or she may be a pain. Are you loyal to the company you work for? I remember uh, back in the day, I worked at a company and I had um, part of my thing was I spent a lot of money, billions of dollars on behalf of the company. And uh, I had plenty of opportunities to spend it. I could send it this way because, you know, those people, um, they treat me better. These people, you know, they don't buy me presents. But I had to make my decisions based on loyalty to the company. I had to think about what is in the best interest of the company that I work for. That's a small example of how loyalty plays out in day-to-day living. And God wants to see that attribute in you. And it pleases him. I think that, you know, going back to David, a man after my own heart, that's the kind of thing that really pleases God. None of us are going to get through life without sin, without making a mistake. And we can atone for those things. But there's other matters of the heart that are very important to God. And I put it to you that loyalty is one of them. Are you loyal to God's church? How do you feel about God's mission, his plan? Are you loyal to God's people? Are you loyal to one another? Okay, conclusion. I mentioned that I found loyalty a difficult concept to to define succinctly, and I spent a fair bit of time kind of going over that at the beginning. And after going through all this, I felt like, or I came to the conclusion that loyalty looks sounds a lot like love. A lot like love. There might be some differences between the two. And I'll give you a a challenge, if you will. What are the differences between love and loyalty? They're hard to define. But I found, and I came to the conclusion, that loyalty, true loyalty, looks and sounds a lot like love.